you have a copy of the Bible, you can open it up to the book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in a handful of verses in Acts chapter 2 uh, here in a few moments. I want to say a special welcome to you if you are a guest with us. I know some of you came to witness this baptism. Thank you to you. It's wonderful to see uh, so many family and friends uh, to be here for Eliana and to witness her baptism. Uh, so welcome to you. But also if you're a guest and maybe you live here locally, uh, we wanted to say welcome to you as well. And if you'd be interested in knowing, certainly knowing more about Christ, but also if you'd be interested in knowing more about our church, uh, we'd be glad to start to try to connect with you, learn some of who you are, uh, share about our Lord, share about our church. Uh, a way you could help us do that, so you're not just a, a stranger, would be to fill out a connection card. You could do a paper version on the program you received as you came in, fill it out sometime this morning, uh, take it with you back out to the lobby. There's a count out to the left where some folks will be who'd love to say hello, get to know you a little bit. Or you can fill it out digitally too. Just follow the QR code up here or it's on the back of that program as well. Uh, fill that out and we will follow up with you. But uh, we've been praying for you as pastors uh, that the Lord uh, would minister to you. That as you're with us this morning, that he would meet with you, that he would uh, teach you, that he would grow you. And so I, I trust that that he will. I also want to say before we turn our attention to this text, just an ongoing thank you for your generosity as a church family. Uh, our fiscal year ends tomorrow, and it's been a, a sweet thing to see this year. The Lord's provision through the gifts he's granted to you, uh, that, that we've been above budget all year, been able to even think outside the box and do things that we hadn't intended to, and seeking to invest well in ministries and even our facilities here. Uh, one nice thing, a small thing even this week, because we have a, an ever-increasing number of little kids, it feels like, in our church which is wonderful, but we have small classrooms. Uh, we knocked out a wall and are making two classrooms into one over in this hallway that should be completed um, by next Sunday. So we're able to do that work and invest in those materials uh, to do that. Special thanks to Kirk Rockenball and uh, several uh, folks who helped with that this week as well. But thank you for your generosity uh, to all of you. All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to be in verses 42 through 47 in particular, and I'm going to reference maybe a few other texts along the way, uh, but we're starting about a, a month-long series of messages this week. We just ended Hebrews last week, which is kind of the normal way we do things. We go through a book of the Bible slowly, uh, but we're going to, and we're going to start Genesis about a month from now, uh, but we're going to take a month in between to really focus in on the subject of community. And what does that look like in the life of a church specifically? Uh, what, uh, how should that happen? Why should we do it? What should be features of it? Uh, and we want to give some attention to that and be able to see biblically uh, why this is important and how it should be shaped, what should be the values that are embedded in it. So we're going to take four weeks to look at a few different texts, and we're going to start here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I'll read it here in just a moment, but I wanted to kind of frame why we're doing this and then this text in particular came across a an article uh, recently that was written by a man named Marshall Siegel, and it was about groups, like small groups or community groups. Churches call them all sorts of different things uh, in the life of their community, but there was this one sentence in particular that I, I felt like was very punchy and accurate and helps explain kind of why we are trying to implement some of the changes that we are this fall when it comes to groups here in the life of our church. And this is what he said, and you can see if you agree with this from your experience or what you would conjecture experience to be like in a small group. He said this, your small group is destined to die a slow, complacent, even cordial death without direction. 
So I'll read that again. He said, your small group is destined to die a slow, complacent, even cordial death without direction. And what he was getting at is that, hey, if we try to just throw a bunch of Christians together and we get together even regularly, but we don't know why we're getting together, we don't know what we're actually trying to do when we get together, there's no real direction, uh, often because we're gracious people, as Christians, we'll continue to do that. We'll keep coming, we'll keep participating. But if we don't see value in it and we feel like, man, I don't even know what we're trying to do here, what's probably going to happen typically is that it's going, that group is going to die a slow complacent, even cordial death, uh, that, that people are going to lose interest, they're going to kind of fracture off, they're going to splinter off. And you may have experienced that some in the church before in groups you've been part of, that if you don't know why you're getting together, you don't know what the point of this gathering is, then what tends to happen is you become aimless. You, be, you even have different expectations. Like you may think this group is for this, and I think this group is for this, and we're just talking past each other, and I'm satisfied, and you're disappointed, or you're satisfied and I'm disappointed we'll, we'll start to feel also if we don't know why we're getting together we'll start to feel a sense of like futility or pointlessness like are we moving is this going anywhere Does this accomplish anything uh, for us and as a church we've had what we call life groups for years and years and many of them have functioned very well some of them have not some have had a short shelf life and fizzled out some have met for maybe even almost a few decades uh, but we've they've been all over the map as far as how they function and what they do and how frequently they meet and uh, what the nature of their conversations are there's been as across the board in the church, a lack of direction, a lack of consistency. And what we're trying to do as we look ahead to this fall is try to bring some consistency, try to make sure that the, the structure of those groups is established and that we know if I'm part of a group, if you're part of a group, this is what we're trying to do and why. And so we can all be on the same page and not have this directionlessness uh, that might lead to slow, complacent, cordial death of a group, but where we're all on the same page and we come with the same expectations and we're, we're used by God to grow each other. And so we've been taking months as church staff and leadership to think about how can we kind of retool these groups, not just chuck them, but how can we retool them, clarify what they're about, uh, how to better organize them, how to better equip leaders to lead them, those types of things. And so we're going to take a month and we're going to see from the text of scripture some of what's undergirding what we're planning to do. Uh, we'll, we'll send out some communications. There'll be some things, uh, ways that you can get a glimpse of if you haven't been a group, but you'd like to be, what that would look like. And you can let us know that and we can integrate you into the life of the group. Uh, but we're going to take a month to see biblically why we should have these groups and what they should be like. And so we're going to turn today to the very first example in the scriptures, at least in the New Testament, of maybe what you would call a small group or a community group or a life group, whatever term you would want to use. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We'll, like I said, we'll start at verse 42, go to the end of the chapter, just so we know what we're about to read. The book of Acts starts when the resurrected Jesus is still on earth. Uh, but soon thereafter, uh, he ascends back into heaven. And when you get to Acts chapter 2, there's this uh, event called Pentecost where uh, the Holy Spirit comes down as Peter is preaching. Uh, the, the Spirit moves upon even thousands of people that hear the good news of this Jesus who was crucified just weeks earlier and who was raised from the dead and who's recently ascended to heaven. And they believe. The Spirit cuts to their heart. And they believe. And there's just these 
these mass conversions. It's a fantastic, amazing event, a pivotal event in history of the world and certainly the history of the church. And what we're going to pick up today, if you read verse 41 right before this, it says that there were uh, many who received his word that were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls And then we're going to read this paragraph of, then what did they do? Like, how did they in those very early days as Christians, how did they function together? How did they spend their time? And we're going to learn from their example of some things that are important for us, uh, of why we should do similar things, why we should prioritize similar things. So that said, uh, I want to read this for us, then we'll walk back through it and kind of see what these earliest Christian communities were like. So follow along with me. The, the disciple Luke continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. This is certainly not the only text uh, that in the New Testament or in the scriptures that give us a picture of what Christian community looks like. There's several others. There's many others, and we'll get to look at some of those in the next few weeks. Uh, but this is perhaps, I would suggest to you, the most simple, straightforward description of Christian community uh, that we have in all the scriptures. Uh, and it, So it's helpful for us to look at it, make some observations from it about what these earliest Christians did together so we can seek to follow their examples. And so I want to walk through this paragraph and show you what I just call four observations about Christian community. And then we'll think together some of what relevance that has for us as we try to think through groups, community groups, even here in our church. So I want to point out a couple things here. The first observation would be this, that the gatherings of these earliest disciples were both large and small. And they're both public and private. Uh, So right here off the bat is there's thousands of people that come to faith, 3,000 people who come to faith in Jesus and have been baptized. You see that there's, we saw in the text, there's two main places or uh, venues, maybe if you want to think of that way, where they would gather together, right? You see that they gathered in the temple, that's in verse 46, but they also gathered in their home. So they would attend the temple together, but then they would break bread in their homes. And so the temple, as they would come there, this is all happening in the city of Jerusalem, around the city of Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified and raised. That's where this Pentecost event takes place. This is there in Jerusalem where the temple stood, this building where God had dwelled, where he had interacted with his people, where uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years this had been a public place. It had gone through a few iterations even. It had gotten torn down and rebuilt a few times. Uh, but they would gather there. So these early Christians Christians, they would come and they would meet at the temple. Uh, And I don't necessarily think when it says that they would attend the temple together in verse 46, I don't think that means all 3,000 people would come to the temple at the same time, right? That may not be exactly what happened. That'd be hard uh, to do feasibly, pre-internet and cell phones and things like that. Uh, But they would do it together, 
So it, it wasn't just individuals kind of coming whenever they wanted, but there were these groups of people who would ascend to the temple, who would go there to meet together. And what it seems like from this text is that's where they would do what we see in verse 42, that they would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That Peter, James, John, these brothers that Jesus had given as apostles were probably there at the temple teaching, uh, explaining the scriptures to these newest Christians, telling them about the resurrected Jesus. So they would gather in this public location, seemingly day by day, receiving the apostles' teaching there. But then they would also gather in people's homes, right? In verse 46, it says that they would break bread in their homes together. And so they wouldn't see just going to the temple as that being sufficient. Kind of we go there in mass, we're there as a crowd together, and then we just all go and disperse and do our own thing individually or as families. But as they would go away from the temple, they would go to homes, and they would gather there to further seemingly discuss things and break bread together, have meals together, process probably what they had heard there from the apostles and what God was doing in their life. And that is probably in their homes where they would experience what Luke says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, right? To the breaking of bread and prayers. That in those homes would be where they would actually be able to fellowship together, know each other, hear what's going on in each other's lives. And so these earliest gatherings were large and small. They were public and private. Both were very important. The last couple years here as a church, we have tried to use uh, three terms as we think about any disciple who's part of our church, including you if you're a Christian. Three venues we want people to be part of as they function as a Christian. And we've, it's not rocket science. We've talked uh, about worship community and service and they're kind of represented those little icons there that every Christian should be assembling together Sunday by Sunday to worship with God's people publicly corporately but also we want everyone that's a Christian to be involved in more private gatherings with smaller groups of Christians uh, in community to actually know people to to share life with them to pray with them to encourage them and then the last one is that we want people to serve uh, to use the gifts that God has given to you uh, could be in public ways could be in private ways but those first two worship and community you see right here right for these earliest christians they would gather to worship but they would gather in community and homes and we need both as christians we need public gathering and private gathering we need whole church gathering and we need smaller subset of church gathering and i don't know about you but if you're a christian you may feel more bent toward one or the other like you may be a more like, no, I'm just kind of like a crowd person. I just like singing and, and hearing preaching and then I like to just keep to myself. Or maybe you're like, man, I am kind of introverted and I'd like smaller settings. I'd really just like to get together with a couple people. And that's what my experience of Christianity would be like if I could craft it. But God wants us to be involved in both. And Christians have been involved in both from the beginning. Gathering together as a large group, gathering together in smaller subsets as well. So that's observation number one. Second one would be this, and this may go without saying, but I don't want it to, is the second observation from Acts 2 here is that these gatherings at the temple and then in their homes, so even these smaller gatherings, were gatherings of Christians. Like they were not just gatherings of people who lived in Jerusalem, but they were gatherings of people who believed in Christ, people who had put their faith in Jesus, right? And you can see that because he starts in verse 42, right? He says, they devoted themselves to these things, apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayers. But who is the they? Like who is the they that were devoting themselves to this and then gathering together? 
You see it back in verse 41, right? Like the verse right before it. He says, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So that they, that this whole paragraph is describing, is people who had heard this good news of Jesus and believed it and said, Peter, what do we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. And they did. They, they responded in faith to this gospel message. And so these gatherings that we hear about here are of Christians. Not just Jews who are living in or around Jerusalem, but of Christians in particular. And you see it in verse 44 also, right? He says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So this paragraph through and through is talking about Christian people who'd heard the gospel, who had believed it. Who, they're, they're not just intrigued people. Right? They're not just seekers. They're not any of these things. These are people who are convinced of the, the resurrection of Jesus, who have been converted and put their faith in him, who've been baptized even as Christians. And so I would just say simply, and then we'll move to observation three, it's really important to us as a church family as we think about what we're going to start calling community groups as we kind of relaunch these things, that these be comprised of people who are Christians. Not that we can see perfectly into every heart, but that these are people, these are men and women who have heard the good news and have put their faith in Jesus. And we know some churches do that differently. Some groups have a more like open model of groups where it's just community groups that are mostly Christians, but then you can invite anybody, maybe even people who don't know a thing about Jesus, to come and try to fellowship with that group. And we totally understand the evangelistic, like missional impulse of that, to say, hey, anybody can come and fellowship with us. But if we desire these groups to be what we desire them to be, where you can actually do things like safely confess your sin to one another, right? How can you do that with a non-Christian <laughs> safely and have confidence that they're going to extend grace to you? How, if we, if we want these groups to be a place where you share and seek out counsel, biblical counsel from brothers and sisters, and you have people there who don't even love Christ at all, like that, that don't even know him, maybe still are an enemy of his. Uh, th th it just doesn't, it's not going to, these groups won't function how we desire them to. And the, these earliest groups weren't functioning this way. They were born again, baptized people who were fellowshipping together. And that doesn't displace a, a need for and a responsibility to share the gospel. But when we fellowship together in community groups, these are to be Christians. People we have confidence, you love Christ, I love Christ. We respect and know the scriptures are inspired by God. We have this common understanding of how we're going to live life together. And so it's important for us as we seek to kind of turn a corner on groups that our, our groups not be viewed, these community groups that we're going to continue or maybe even start up in our church, not be viewed as just like affinity groups or like age bracket groups, like where what we have most in common is we're all in our 20s or we're all retired, or we all work in the orthopedic industry, or fill in the blank, that, that there's some other common hub that unites us, but we want the common hub that unites us to be that we're all born-again Christians, that we all love Christ. That is what uh, the hub of our group should be. So these were gatherings of Christians. The third observation I want to make is this, that, uh, that these smaller gatherings uh, of, uh, in homes were essential for healthy church growth. 
If there was going to be more and more men and women converted and brought into the kingdom, they needed people to actually fellowship with. And yeah, you could keep kind of adding water to the soup, so to speak, at the temple. Like you could keep having people come and the apostles could just yell louder or talk louder in those large gatherings. But to actually know people who could help you grow and that you could help grow, you needed to have more and more houses, more and more groups of people where these folks could meet. And you see this growth of the church in this text, right? Like he says in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Side note, may we pray for that to be, right? Uh, May that be true. The same spirit who did that is still within this church and within us today, and we still have the same gospel. And may we see that happen more and more as we share the gospel with our relatives and neighbors and within our families. Yes, uh, may we see that. But if, if God is going to save more people, if he's going to bring more people into the life of any local church, there needs to be context where they can be known right? Where they can be known personally by people. And that's not just happening in this gathering. We can try to do that as best as we can, but it's best going to happen in small groups and in what we're going to call community groups as a church. And so one thing just I would note practically for these community groups that we're uh, seeking to continue or, or grow in our church is that we want every group to have not just a possibility that someday our group may expand and we maybe could add new people if we want to and maybe someday we can multiply into be two groups. We want that to be a desire of every group and a plan even if the Lord would grant it for every group is that we slowly would integrate people into our community and we would expand this circle and then in time we would raise up a new leader and now we'll have two groups. That is how healthy church growth happens is that you have to have people to do this, people to fellowship with. And so these small gatherings were essential for healthy church growth. And the last one I would show you from this text would be this, is that those who gathered in these communities, these earliest Christians, they were devoted to particular activities together. There was a devotion to them. Not just that they did them kind of as they saw fit and they kind of opted in and out and ebbed and flowed, but they were devoted to certain activities together, right? Luke on purpose phrases it this way in verse 42. He says that these earliest Christians devoted themselves, right? Devoted themselves not just to Jesus. They did that in baptism, right? But they devoted themselves to particular activities, to actual functions together as fellow Christians. So they devoted themselves to being taught by the apostles, right? To fellowshipping, verse 42, with other Christians, to breaking bread with other Christians, to praying with other Christians, right? They were devoting themselves to particular activities. Uh, And so it is important for us as we think about community groups here at our church, it's important to us that we actually devote ourselves to certain ways of functioning together right? Like that we know I'm committing to this, you're committing to this, we're committing to these particular types of functions together. Not just we're all coming to the table like, well, I thought I was going to get this out of the group, and I thought I was going to get this out of the group, and well, I thought we were going to spend time doing this, or I thought we were going to spend time doing that, but we want to have clear expectations of what you're devoting yourself to, uh, what types of activities are going to be part of this group, that you're not just committing yourself 
to just generically love these fellow group members in some abstract sense, but you're committing to actual activities together, to actual ways of engaging with one another. And we'll share more in depth about what those are. Uh, but the way we're going to describe the purpose of these groups that we see grounded in various biblical texts would be this, that we want every group member to see their group this way, that this is going to be a consistent context in which members can personally stir each other up in faith and spur each other on in obedience to Christ. And that's kind of high level what you'd be committing to if you're going to continue or start to be in a group is that you're going to personally be present to, to stir each other up in faith and to spur each other on in obedience to Christ and that your fellow group members are going to do the same thing toward you. Uh, that is how we are going to seek to orient groups. That's going to be the purpose that we're bending them toward, uh, that you're going to commit to these things. You're going to devote yourself as a member of the group two particular functions together. And as we think of groups and how we would like to see them function, what does that, how does that actually flesh out? We've started using some shorthand terms that all start with C, our churches, CCC, so we're just adding a fourth one. Four words that start with C that we want conversation in any community group to revolve around. Uh, these are going to be up on the screen. We're going to actually take these, these next four weeks. I'm going to briefly mention, talk about the first one today here in just a moment. Then the other three weeks, we're going to talk about the three that follow. Um, but what we want is for groups, these community groups, is anybody who's part of them moving forward we want them to come prepared each time so I'll come prepared to do this if you're in a group you'll come prepared to do this come prepared to share at least one of these things they could be a celebration to share like praising God for something that he's up to in your life or something you've witnessed recently the second thing that you could come ready to potentially share would be a care to unburden, something heavy that has been a struggle, a trial for you that you want your fellow group members to know so that they can pray for you, that they can seek to care well for you, to come alongside you. The third that you could come ready to potentially share would be counsel that you're seeking, that you're trying to engage with a person, you're trying to navigate a circumstance, and you're desiring biblical counsel from your brothers and sisters, like, can you all help me think through this? Can you help me process how to live in this? And the last one would be, and this is going to be the hardest one, uh, and we're going to save it till last, but there's the last Sunday of this, we're going to talk about how as group members, we should come ready, if we are Christians who are safe in Christ, that we should come ready potentially, consistently even, to make a confession of sin to one another. We're biblically commanded to do that. And it's good for our soul. But those take uh, guidance and thought of how to do. But those are the things that we want to be the, re the revolving conversation subjects in these groups. Celebration, care, counsel, and confession. And so we're going to take Sunday by Sunday, talk through those. I want to take just a couple minutes to talk about this first one. If, if we want these community groups to function, and we want you, if you're going to be part of a group, to come ready sometimes to have a celebration to share. I want to briefly at least talk about why that should mark our groups and what that should actually look like. Uh, because Christian community should be marked, I would say. It should be marked by a celebration of God's goodness and his grace to us. That should be a regular part of how we talk, of how we share in conversation to, uh, together is seeing God at work and drawing attention to it, thanking him in the context and the company of other people for who he is and what he's doing. And you get a little glimpse of that in today's text, in Acts chapter 2, this celebrating, this thankfulness that's coming up in these people, and how could it not, right, with what has just been happening there in Jerusalem. But look at this text, a couple of things. You see in verse 43, Luke says that, 
awe came upon every soul. These people were not just like, oh yeah, I hear about Jesus. Yeah, I believe in him, whatever. Like, I'll, I'll go in the water. There is awe in these people's souls that just weeks before a man was crucified before their very eyes and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, and now they're told as people who were complicit in crucifying him that you can have forgiveness of sin and you can have hope of eternal life. You can be united with him. And then miracles are starting to happen. There's signs and wonders happening and thousands of people are coming to faith there is awe in these people's hearts like there, there's no shoulder shrugging christianity here in jerusalem there's awe in their hearts and then verse 46 he says that they receive their food with glad hearts and generous hearts so internally these folks these christians have glad hearts there's thankfulness gladness of heart and then they express that awe and gladness, I would say, in verse, they express it many ways here in this text, but one way you see them express these things is down in the last verse, verse 47. He says that they were praising God together, right? That's a simple statement, but that's what they were doing. As they're awestruck by what God's doing, as they have this gladness of heart, it comes out in an expression of praise. Uh, that would happen probably at the temple, but would also happen in their homes as they gathered together. And as Christians, this is important for us to be regularly doing this. Uh, not just when we come together and sing and just think, well, that's when I praise God. And then that's done. Close that. Next Sunday, we'll do it again. But we should be praising God, celebrating God day by day, right? We, uh, like week by week, that should be a regular part of how we function as a Christian. And as we come together in community groups and with fellow Christians, we are always going to have a need to help each other face hard things in life, right? suffering, confusion, sin that we're struggling with, or when sin comes against us. And we'll get to talk about those things in weeks to come. But what is always, always, always true of any gathering of Christians is that we have things to celebrate, right? Things that God has done for us in Christ, but things that God is doing presently amongst us. And we may not typically see it. We may not pay attention to it or notice it, but it's important for us to, to cultivate a habit of looking for ways that God's at work and praising him for it. Being able to tell my brothers and sisters, look what God has done for me recently. Like, let me tell you about what he has done in my life. Uh, that should be a regular habit of ours. As I was talking about this series and this message in particular with a few brothers this week, uh, one of them brought up uh, the verse from Psalm 34, verse 3 where King David had written this simple thing, and may this be the expression of our heart. He said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Uh, that is a beautiful, simple statement. Magnify the Lord with me. Like, I'm doing it. I'm thankful for what he's done, what he's doing in my life. Let's do this together. I want to hear your good reports of what God is doing, the things that he's up to in your life. And so this should be a regular practice of what we do, celebrating God together. And I, I want to give two examples of what this could look like, and then I'll be finished. How this can look in a community group celebrating what God has done and who God is. First, it could be just celebrating things from your own life. That's probably going to be the most natural thing that we do. Is I, I take inventory of my life as I come ready for group and I think, what in recent days has God done to me or for me or in me? And if you look long enough, you're going to have a host of things that you can, they may feel simple to you, they may feel trite to you some weeks, but you can share personal ways that you have seen God at work in your life. You should 
Every week, you should be able to come up with something like that, uh, that you can share ways that he has helped you, ways that he has encouraged you, ways that he has answered your prayers, ways that he has helped you resist temptation, ways that you have witnessed him at work as you've shared the gospel with people. Something, you could share something just you've learned about his character, something you've been reminded of about God. You can celebrate those types of things, of traits of God. But I would encourage you, as you think about this, and as you consider, as you come to a group ready to potentially share a celebration, get in the habit, I want to be better at this. When I'm talking about my life with fellow Christians, I want to get in the habit of doing more than just giving a factual report of events. Like, well, this happened, and then this was frustrating, or then this good thing happened. But try to always remember that God is the one who's directing all of this. That this is not just a script of events, but God is present in these things, right? When there is a, a kindness that someone has done to me, thank them for that, but thank God for that. Tell the people in your life, not just this person did this for me, but God led this person to do this for me right? Or when you feel a victory over sin in your life, don't just share it in some prideful way like, man, I'm so grateful I resisted this. But say, man, the Spirit of God helped me to resist this. And it was very tempting for me, but he helped me to resist. Or when you see someone converted, share that, celebrate that. But remember, God is the one who's done that. He's brought it together. So start to see the events of your life in a bigger frame and tell people about what God has done, not just what you have seen take place. And my group this year has been a joy. I'm not going to give details because I didn't ask her if I could share this. But there's a, a member of our group who went through an intense medical trial where we were very nervous for her, where we were praying fervently for her. We were asking the Lord to do significant things to preserve her life, to protect her. And it has been a joy. That, this is a big thing, but it, it's been a joy as she's been able to come to group to hear her give updates. Uh, she's a fairly private person but to give updates of, what, of God's kind. Not just, hey, medically this happened and medically that happened, although that was helpful for us to hear, but to get to hear her praise God for what he's done in predicting her, uh, to praise him for how he has looked after her and saw fit to sustain her life and restore her health has been a sweet joy. And may we do that again and again as group members, share what God is up to in our life. But the second thing I would, I would encourage you to think, the last category of celebration, would be to celebrate what you see in each other's life. Right? To not just celebrate, man, this is something wonderful I saw in my life, but to try to keep eyes out for what is God doing in your life. And fellow group member, what's he doing in your life that I see? And other group member, what's he doing in your life that I see? And try to draw attention to those things. Celebrate those things. Think, Have a bigger frame of reference than just your life. Like have eyes out to see the good that God is doing in other people. And I think that's one way God wants to use us in each other's life. It's to shine a spotlight on the things he's doing in their life that they may miss. But to point their attention to it, to help them see it and not just look past it. Uh, a pastor within our denomination named C.J. Mahaney uh, has taught extensively on this and it's been really impactful to me. He uses a phrase that's based on a text from uh, 1 Corinthians 1. He, he uses this phrase a lot of evidences of grace. That he's encouraging pastors or any Christian really to look for evidences of grace in each other's life. Uh, to, to keep your eyes out for what is God doing in this person. And it may feel subtle to them or imperceptible to them, but what is he up to 
And how can I point that out to them? How can I show that to them? Because if you look hard enough, you will see those things as well. Even if somebody you don't have a lot in common with or you, you, your personalities don't jive a ton, you may not have natural affinity to them. If you look hard enough and long enough at their life over a span of time, you, if they're a Christian, you are going to see evidence of God's grace in their life. And would it not help your heart to point that out to them? It's definitely going to help them, but it's going to help you as well to look for the Spirit of God and His work in their life. I want to share a quote from Pastor Mahaney. He had written this. He said, Most people are more aware of the absence of God than the presence of God. Most people are more aware of the presence of sin than evidences of grace. Then he said, What a privilege and joy it is and small group ministry to turn one's attention to ways in which God is at work because so often people are unaware of God's work and much of God's work in our lives is quiet. It's not spectacular. It's rarely obvious to the individual and normally it's incremental and takes place over a lengthy period of time. Uh, and so there's, God is always doing, even if there's subtle, small, imperceptible things, he's always doing work in our life as a Christian. And it helps to have other Christians have eyes on that, to draw my attention to that, to remind me the Spirit of God is at work in you. I've seen him grow you as a parent. I've seen him grow you as a friend. I've seen him grow you uh, as a worshiper. I've seen him grow you in the use of your gifts. I've seen him make you a more generous person. I've seen you become more slow with your words. I've seen, like, to be able to show them these things remind them of these things that they may miss is a kindness of God that could come through you and he may use them to show you things that God is doing in your life that you may miss it is good for your soul it is good for all of our souls to hear these types of celebrations right the good things God's doing in our life the good things the spirit is doing in others life I'll close with this I was reading a book recently uh, about small groups, community groups, whatever you want to call them in different churches. And they were saying how some churches try to create groups that are uh, gospel plus, fill in the blank groups. Like, hey, like what we really have in common is the gospel plus our age bracket or the gospel plus our ethnicity or the gospel plus our hobby. And we're going to jam all of you together. And we're going to have you function as a group and try to care for one another versus what they call a gospel-revealing community. Uh, that what you do there is that you just put people of all stripes, all ages, both genders, various ethnicities, various uh, economic levels. You put them together and they don't have any like preset common thing other than the good news of Jesus. And when that's the case, that's what we discuss, right? We're not just chit-chatting about the commonality thing that we have and then Jesus is kind of like a bonus little tag of what we do as a community. But when you put uh, the gospel as a center, you put the good news of Jesus at the center, that is when I think groups function best and healthiest. That Jesus is not just a tag on to some more important thing that we have in common, but he is the most important thing uh, that we have in common. And I love kids that were up here singing uh, that song that you sang. Uh, I loved hearing you all almost like shout out, this is the best news that we could ever hear, right? The best news that I could give to any of you in the room is not that we have wonderful community groups to plug you into, right? 
that's good news. If we can better structure these, I, and I trust we will, like, that's good news that, that we can have groups that we can plug you into that can help you grow. But the best news that I can offer you, that a church can offer you, is not their small group ministry or community group ministry. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, ascended, and someday returning again. That is the best news that I can offer you. And more than, I hope all of you, if you're not part of a, a group right now, that as we share ways in future weeks to get plugged into these groups, I hope every single one of you becomes part of a group. I think it would be good for your soul. But there's some of you in the room who, before you would ever join a group of Christians, you need to become a Christian first. Like you need to come to Christ first. We could plug you into a group with other Christians. They will not save you. They cannot stand before God on your behalf. They cannot be crucified for you or raised for you. But there is a person who has been and is, Jesus Christ. And what you need most is not just good friends, right? Like you need a great Savior. And yes, you need friends who, who can care for you, who, can, uh, who you can care for. God made us for that. But if we have friends without a Savior, what do we have? Like if we have a group that regularly meets together and eats together and talks together and enjoys each other's company, but we don't have Christ, we have nothing, right? But if we have Christ, we have everything. And then the friends, the group is a bonus on top of that, a spirit-granted bonus to help us enjoy him more, right? Not just to enjoy each other more and build each other up, but to circle around him, to come together around him again and again and again. And if you have never come to Christ in faith, today can be the day that you do that. I know we have a lot of kids in the room who aren't normally in here to hear me preach, so thank you for bearing with me. But I wanted to end with the simple way I heard somebody present the gospel to children. I've shared it before, but I'll share it again. But it's equally relevant to adults. As they shared about this Jesus uh, who died for us, he suffered for our sins, and then God raised him from the dead uh, so that we could potentially have eternal life as well. They wanted to, to share in a simple way with children, how do you respond to that good news of a Jesus who suffered for you and who's been raised for you? And they, they use three simple words that we teach kids as little as we can to say of sorry, thank you, and please. That, that would be what I would call biblically as a response for any kid, any adult in the room as you hear about Jesus crucified for you, raised for you. What God would call forth from you is to tell him sorry. God, I'm sorry I've rebelled against you. Like, I'm sorry I've disobeyed you. Second would be, uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he suffered for my sins, that he took my sins and, and died even in my place. Thank you for that. And thank you for raising him from the dead to show that you love him and you're willing to forgive me. So sorry, thank you, and then please just asking him finally and simply, please, God, because of what Jesus has done, please forgive me. Like, please have me as your son or daughter. And if you say that with sincerity of heart, it doesn't have to be those exact words, but if that's the attitude of your heart, sorry for my sins. Thank you for Jesus. Please forgive me. God does not turn you away. Like, God is glad to answer those prayers with, yes, I'm glad to, and he can do that even today. And so may that be the prayer of everyone's uh, heart in this room is sorry, thank you, and please. And then may we grow together as we come in these groups. Uh, may we grow together in our following after Christ.
I'm going to pray for us. I appreciate you all. Listen, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to stand, actually. I'll pray as you do, and then we're going to sing a simple but powerful song that's fitting uh, in response to this message. God, thank you for this passage. Uh, Thank you for what it teaches us, uh, that these earliest of Christians, our forefathers of the faith, uh, that they gathered together in small groups, that they gathered together house to house, not just at the temple that they would gather day by day, that they would care for one another, that they were devoted to each other and devoted to even particular things to do together to come around the good news of Jesus. God, as we seek to change and retool and relaunch these groups in our church and as we seek to even start new groups, we pray that you would help us, that we would have a renewed joy of the privilege of being brothers and sisters and a renewed commitment to actually help one another, uh, to celebrate you together. We pray uh, as we sing now that we would do just that, that we would celebrate what you've done for us in the sending of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.